Welcome to ASM Connected, and a special episode where we look back across the latest series. Over the next 30 minutes, we'll revisit some of the conversations we've had around emerging trends in tech and hear from key speakers, futurists, and business leaders from across the globe. To start with, we'll go back to episode three with guest Brett King. Brett is a world-renowned futurist and shared how people should plan for the impact that innovative technology will have on the world, rather than arguing if it will change the world. This is the best of ASM Connected. One of the really interesting ways to view technology and its role in the world, and this also ties into the whole futurist thing, is being a good futurist, you have to really study the past. You know, you have to understand human behavior and what has gone before. And, you know, what we learn is that over the last 250 years, there's not a single industry that hasn't been transformed by technology. And the number of industries that have successfully defended their traditional business models against innovation is exactly zero. The the thing that sort of amuses me or the, the thing that um, I can't quite wrap a, my head around as a innovator, as a technologist, as a futurist, is why do we resist technology's advance? You know, um, you know, whenever you have an innovation hitting a new industry, like we see fintech disrupting financial services right now, you will always, always get the incumbents who argue it's never going to work. You know, people want to see a person to get a bank account, um, you know, and they'll defend it with their dying breath when from a precedent perspective, there's absolutely zero evidence to support the assertion that this industry is going to be unaffected by technology. And so we need to spend a lot more time planning how innovation should impact the world rather than arguing if it's going to change the world. And I think that's the main message that I've been trying to articulate really the last 10 years or so. In episode five, we met futurist Amelia Kalman. Amelia shared insights all about the future of the metaverse and how it will look in comparison to the internet. So the metaverse is the future of the internet, the next iteration, web 3.0, if you will. And it is going to be a decentralized network of immersive spaces that connect to create one kind of universe. So there's a lot that goes into this. Number one, they're like the World Wide Web today is not owned by a single entity. The metaverse should not be owned by a single entity. And that's a huge challenge because it means companies cooperating and working together. And then also interoperability, making it easy enough to go from one world into another like we do go from one website into another. So one of the biggest things that differentiates the metaverse from the internet that we have today is the World Wide Web was largely created by academics and technologists and governments as a way to share information across geographic locations. And the consumer side of it was kind of an afterthought. And with the metaverse, it is being developed by big tech companies with no government oversight, with consumer data at its core. And, um, and that is slightly concerning, but it is just something to be aware of. So what we have today is a multiverse. So things like Fortnite, Roblox, Minecraft, Horizon, um, Spatial, all these different spaces, they have their own ecosystems, their own economies and currencies 
but there's no way to move from one into the other. So moving forward, we need to be able to come up with ways that we can bring our identities with us, bring our virtual wallets with us, all these kind of things, our skins, our avatars, our NFTs, make it interoperable. In episode eight, we caught up with Brett Fanouf. Brett is the managing director of the Mayflower Autonomous Ship and discussed the challenges faced when building Mayflower and the emerging technologies used in the build. At the outset of it, you know, we, we really weren't sure that we could do it at all. I mean, we knew we could build a boat. We understand how to build boats. And boats break, and in fact, Mayflower broke on its first attempt to cross, right? But not the AI side, but the, the boat part. And that happens. The ocean is very hostile. And boats are complicated, although an unmanned vessel is significantly less complicated than a manned vessel because the preponderance of the design and the engineering effort and the fabrication effort in a traditional vessel, a manned research vessel, are all about keeping humans alive in a hostile environment. When you take the humans out, you take out all the things that humans need. It becomes a much more simple machine, at least. But then when you have to automate it all, it becomes quite challenging. But yeah, we thought, why not? Let's do that and let's see where the limits are. And IBM helped us think through what that meant and how to build what we would call a Captain Watson, but we now call the AI Captain, and make it a reality. And I guess when we started this five years ago, we we didn't we weren't sure we could actually fit the computing resource that we would need to do this uh, in the ship. And then now, just in the last few months, when we had to return back to Plymouth and make repairs and we're about to start out to sea again, just in that period of time, we've been able to double the compute power on the ship just because we felt like it was a good thing to do. Uh, and it all fits in and you could literally pick it all up and walk away with it. You know, it, we're right on the cusp of a lot of really interesting technology emerging. And it's just, we get to do all sorts of great things. We get to do computer science and AI and machine learning, and we get to you know look at how automation and autonomy, what does that really mean? What does it mean to have people you know remotely? How do you move data around? We have to work with satellite comms. How do we have situational awareness? How do we do all these kinds of research? How do we get all these instruments automated and working and reliable and robust so that we can send them out to sea along with the ship and collect this meaningful data? And then the data itself becomes information right at the edge with the sort of edge computing that we were able to, to deploy with the help of IBM. And then, you know, now it's it's a pretty important asset in terms of being a template for the future of data collection at sea, which is, you know, really important when we start thinking about climate change and mitigating strategies and really understanding how our planets. In episode six, we met Jill Holloway, the operations director for EMEA at Insight. Jill shared her thoughts on how businesses can become more agile and whether it's underpinned by strategy or culture. It's all about balance. We have to be so multifaceted now as business people that you have to have a strategy that's underpinned by the expectation of agility. Because organisations that stay the same now, as proven by you know, the many organisations that were in the Fortune 500 for many, many years that are suddenly not there anymore, you have to be agile. That has to be at the core of your strategic understanding as a business. But if you don't make that part of your culture, if it's not endemic to the people that you have, the two things will conflict against each other and will never end up being a reality. And that has to be a people thing. It has to be a facilities thing. It has to be an offices thing. It has to be a technology thing. You know, how you use things, when you use things, it has to be fluid. 
In episode 11, we were joined by Julian Bewley, Chief Revenue Officer at Spond. Julian shared insights about how agility is a startup's biggest strength and how the culture at Spond contributes to their agility. Agility is probably a startup's biggest strength. The idea this tiny garage startup can come and compete with the behemoths, it's all based on agility. So definitely is a startup's biggest strength. Then the biggest challenge is how do you maintain that agility as you start to scale? And it's absolutely those companies that manage to keep and foster that culture and that mindset where agility is key, that they do manage to pivot, they do manage to attend and address these new opportunities. I think for me, there's a quote that stuck with me forever, and it was one that was hammered into me when I worked with an angel investor with a startup with a, with, with a big VC business, I think probably about 2011. And that was culture eats strategy for breakfast, that old Peter Drucker quote. And that's just key, right? That kind of covers everything. So for me, you've got to try and run fast. You've got to run fast enough that the wheels don't fall off. And it's about fostering that culture where you have that entrepreneurial drive from our perspective, you know, we have a we place a lot of value on a kind of a flat hierarchy so that we encourage, I think, creativity across the board, super, super transparency. Maybe most importantly of all of those, uh, th- those values is ownership. So we try and place that area and the feeling that anyone in the team is the CEO of, and it might be the CEO of a, of, of a project, but it's ownership. You know, someone owns that project. They see it through, but they get the value that they can contribute, be open, be transparent, request. And I think that's, that really for us helps contribute from that early startup phase where everything's completely agile and super, super loose, moving into scale up, but still trying to maintain and run as fast as possible. It definitely comes down to ownership. And for us, it's all about the culture and everything else facilitates and supports that. Back in episode nine, we met Inma Martinez. Inma shared her insights about how emerging technology is contributing to the future of the automotive industry and how our roads will look in years to come. The best way to get a fully automated level five car to function is computer vision. And every time that we all sit in front of a computer and we get to a place where somebody says, are you a robot? And we have to click on a bunch of bicycles. We are training uh, Waymo, the uh, level five uh, auto company that Google bought. And I think that Google should pay us all for training such an AI system. But uh, what happens is that if cars move at speed and in areas where other vehicles are also moving at speed, computer vision is not enough. You need to start managing the flow of the vehicles. That's why... We're going to see loads of uh, roadside units, uh, you know, the IoT of the highways. And we're going to see uh, uh, traffic management systems that will basically make red lights and green lights obsolete. Because if you know how many cars are coming into a crossroads, you know how you need to move a certain part of the traffic this way or that way. And eventually, one of the uh, things that we all concur in the industry is that In 15 years' time, the the traffic signals will be lifted off the streets. And probably you will not have to brake if you don't have to, because your car will adapt itself to the speed that is the best one to actually cross a section of a city. So this kind of intelligence in terms of the management is what is coming to cities, is coming to roads. And and there's been very interesting projects in the U.S., for example, where 
certain uh, strips of highways um, have been fitted with uh, roadside units and, and they were able to tell you the amount of fright that was passing through because it could detect the weight of the uh, long-haul vehicles and know if they were loaded up with goods or they were empty. And this type of information is what will bring a new reality to how we move ourselves and things around the world. It's going to have a connection into the world of logistics, for example. In episode 13, we spoke to Richard Price, a global health education technology advisor to the World Health Organization and the NHS. Richard shared real-life examples of how emerging technologies can be used in healthcare environments to personalize learning journeys. So we look into machine learning to be able to personalize those learning journeys and things like that. So I, I think that will be a, a significant change in terms of, of what the future education might look like, that more personalized, more tailored learning interventions. And I think the other thing that we can't really ignore at the moment is the metaverse. So we know that Facebook have, have rebranded themselves and arguably some of that possibly was a, a bit of publicity stunt rather than anything else. But actually what they're talking about is this sort of future hybrid working where you are going to have augmented reality goggles, uh, for want of a better word, so maybe something like Google Glass or something like that that you're wearing, that gives you additional information on top of the real world. So if you were looking at a patient, it might be bring up their x-rays or it might bring up their vital signs or something like that overlaid on top of their, on top of the real world. So you're going to start seeing this sort of blend between the real world and the, the virtual world. And I don't think you can ignore that and how that's going to look in terms of the metaverse and things like that. I mean, there's some, some interesting studies that one of my colleagues did. Um, things like Google Glass are quite elegant and quite discreet. And patients actually didn't mind when the clinician was wearing those and being able to see those headsets and things. When somebody was wearing a, a, a HoloLens, for example, you can't really ignore somebody wearing those. They, they make you look like a, a giant bumblebee or a giant fly with the, the visor at the top. So you can't really ignore somebody wearing those. So it becomes a bit of a barrier between you and the patient. So I think the technology has a long way to go in terms of sort of breaking down those barriers if patients are going to accept their doctor, their nurse wearing something like that that's bringing the metaverse into their work environment. In episode 10, Dr. Rushi Pathak Cowell joined us. And in the episode, we discussed the statistics of healthcare professionals using innovative technology, such as 3D printing. So with respect to 3D printing as a technology, it's like 40 years old. So it's not new for sure. But the thing is that, you know, I was just reading an article the other day which said only 10% of doctors are using technology in terms of 3D printing technology. I was surprised by the statistics because the thing is that the technology has been there for long, but the applications of the technology have just begun. And the technology doesn't just involve the printer, you know, because it is the software, it is the printer, and then it is the material. And when all of these three come together, along with regulatories, which are not very well placed, they are in the process of being placed. So all of this, when comes together, and then you kind of, you know, execute it on the patient. And then, then there is a lot of research which is involved, because that is where then you start using it for long. So this whole thing starting right from uh, the printer, the software, the material as one, and then the regulatory piece as the other, and then both combining them together and doing the research to actually prove that it helps. And that's how the whole thing is run. And I think that has really gone forward in times to come, but it has a long way to go. We need so many more materials because as complex our body is, there is such a lot of potential to create things. It's not only just implants 
guidance guides and you know there's personalized medicine which is involved we can have a personalized printer built up you know there are so many other ways of getting the cost down some people are building their own printers some people are creating materials so innovation is in every aspect of 3d printing in episode 15 we met guests Nick Melgard and Jeffrey Nichols MBE from Primer AI Nick and Jeff discussed how emerging technologies such as natural language processing are reducing friction in the defense sector. I mean, I think the point that you know technology is disrupting all sectors is quite well observed, and Primer is part of something that's going on in a lot of different respects throughout the the technology and machine learning world. Essentially, what we're trying to do is you know engineer things from the from the other direction. So what I mean by that is usually if you would have a very complicated process, let's say teaching a robot to walk, you would have to tell it to put its right leg forward and then rotate its hip by 30 degrees and you would have to come up with a very very complicated set of instructions from the ground up. What machine learning is doing is basically saying, okay, what do I want to see and labeling some examples of success or the thing, you know, thing I'm trying to pick out. and then letting a complicated you know neural network figure out okay well what do all of those instances of success have in common and then extract the rules from that and then reapply them so in a way it's kind of building from the other direction and that's a huge change that primer is part of in language technology but also in in computer vision and you know many other areas of machine learning and data science a couple of years ago you know there was this huge explosion uh in machine learning models for language ai which is you know the the area that we're in but the impact it's having is several fold you know fundamentally technology is about reducing the friction you know i'm, I'm sure i'm sure jeff um, who you know attended staff college i i never did but jeff would have a lot more to say about you know the carl von clausewitz in talking about friction in the battlefield you know basically how many barriers are there to manifesting your intent can you remove you know like what what's the the noise or the difficulties in in doing the thing that you want to do And so fundamentally technology is created to help us do the things that we want to do with fewer complications um you know be be that physical technology or or um, software what's what's kind of ironic and very interesting and i guess the subject for for this discussion is that it's reduced a lot of friction and so now you know we can look up information on the internet very easily we can pilot more or less aut- autonomous weapons you know without having to have someone in the cockpit we can you know shoot a little bit further we can have um, smarter weapons but with all of those technological advances that help us reduce friction we're also creating problems or complications in other areas the massive amount of information that we now have at our disposal the fact that certain very very effective smart weapons have pushed people off the battlefield which is has changed the shape of of armed conflict that's the kind of irony so it's it's had a huge positive impact you know generally emerging technology but it's also created some very new complications that uh, you know companies like Prima uh, and uh, in partnership with the armed forces are, are trying to address in episode 7 we caught up with Kate Trotter head of trends at Insider Trends Kate shared how big a part emerging technology innovation is playing in the transformation of the retail industry i would say is pretty much the biggest driver of change within retail so there are obviously some consumer trends so obviously a lot of people talking about inclusivity gender neutrality stuff like that but i think some of the most widespread changes and things that retailers need to be aware of are all being driven by tech and you could perhaps even say that a lot of these consumer trends are ultimately being driven by tech and people being better connected so i spend a lot of time talking about tech 
which is why I hope I can share something interesting to you. But um, when we talk about types of innovation, I think we tend to split it in terms of customer facing innovation and tech behind the scenes. Different parts of a business are going to be interested in different things, but um, there are benefits to be had whichever way you look. Pretty much any well-applied technology will bring benefits to a business if applied at the right time. Back in episode two, we were joined by Richard Potter, Director of Digital Strategy at Microsoft. Richard talked through how Microsoft Teams enabled secure digital collaboration for businesses during the pandemic and the possibilities for the future. If we push on from the the sort of the Teams-based hybrid working experience, let's develop that a little bit more. I mean, we, we would probably experience Teams initially as being just a way of keeping the communication going that we used to do physically. We can now do virtually through cameras and screens with great sophistication and confidence. But very, very quickly, you realize that actually that environment becomes an enabler of greater digitization and greater productivity. So it becomes an environment within which you're drawing on bits of infrastructure security, for instance. So the identity that you're bringing into these experiences is managed through the Office 365 identity that is sitting underneath Teams. So you've you've got a confidence of identity and security that is moving you into a secure platform for conversations. But then it's also a single digital space within which people can share data, can share digital experiences, can collaborate on documents, can bring to life PowerPoints with interactivity and use workloads like artificial intelligence to put natural language processing into, to caption, to translate, to synchronize to all of all of those productivity experiences. And then beyond that, you're beginning to realize the power of these platforms to digitize much of your workflow, the integration of applications into Teams. So from Microsoft's perspective, using things like Power Apps and Power Automate and embedding those functionalities within your hybrid working platform, your Teams platform, to enable you to take advantage of the fact that you are now all collaborating together in this digital space and you're then able to use that digitization to extend it into the greater digitization of your operations. In episode 14, Caitlin Lewis, the founder and CEO of Supplier Day, joined us to discuss the main mistake that large organizations make in their approach to agility. I think that this is often the mistake that large organizations make is that they think that agile, the methodology, will result in agile, the mindset. But actually, you've got to focus on the mindset first. Again, I do think that this comes back to corporate mindset, which is, well, if we have the process and we follow the process exactly how they tell us to, then we'll achieve our goals. If we follow the innovation process, then we will have an innovation by the end of it, which sadly isn't the case, because if it was, I think everybody would find their work a lot easier. Rather, what you've got to do is focus on that mindset around honestly being agile and again you know I don't think that there is a a specific definition of what being agile is and whether you are in a startup or whether you are in a corporate you should probably ask you and your team what being agile means to them is it about being really flexible with how it is that you're choosing to approach something is it about being flexible with 
what you're trying to achieve. And I would encourage you to really dig below the surface a little bit. What it resulted for in one of our teams at Unilever was they came out with a list of kind of principles or values and behaviors around how they were going to work together. And it all kind of stemmed from this mindset of being agile, not being so stuck, not being so stubborn. And it was amazing to see how as soon as the team had started to define those principles and how they wanted to approach working together, agile, the methodology just fell into place. Because now people understood why they needed to have a daily stand-up. They understood why they needed to spend two hours a week just talking about what work they were going to do, as opposed to just going and getting the work done. They wanted to hold retrospectives because now they were committing to a constant improvement of how they were working. And so that was really cool to see. In episode four, we caught up with futurist Matthew Griffin. Matthew talked all about technology's impact on climate change and how businesses can do their bit to help. So when we have a look at trying to solve, for example, the global climate crisis, which is leading to extreme weather events that over the past sort of 20 years have increased in number by over 600%. So just to put the extreme weather into context, since the year 2000, we've seen 1.23 million people killed by extreme weather. We've seen 4.6 billion people on the planet affected in some way by extreme weather, whether it's you know floods, whether it's heat waves, for example, as we've actually seen across Europe and, the North, and North America. And from a damage perspective and from an insurance perspective, insurers have now paid out over $2.93 trillion. So when we actually have a look at trying to solve the big issue that is climate change, bearing in mind it also has an impact on the oceans. So for example, when you have a look at oceanic warming. The equivalent of five nuclear bombs worth of heat and energy is going into the world's oceans every second, which leads to increases in sea level rises. These are stories within stories and all this kind of thing. But to bring it back to the point, today we already have the technologies that we need to eliminate 70%, at least 70% of all global greenhouse gas emissions, particularly CO2. So when we start looking at these as a timeline, the first thing that we can actually do is use artificial intelligence. So a couple of years ago, Google's DeepMind unit, which is an artificial intelligence unit based in the UK, uh, applied their deep learning system to a hyperscale data center, to one of Google's hyperscale data centers. And I remember having this conversation basically with Lloyds Bank, uh, ironically, basically when I was uh, at Sedit System Integrator. So in this particular example, Google's artificial intelligence was, should we say, inserted into one of their hyperscale data centers to try to learn the patterns of energy use within the data center. After a two-week period, it managed to cut the energy consumption of that data center by 20%, which in Google's terms, providing I remember my numbers correctly, reduced their electricity bill by about 20 million, and if applied to their global estate, would reduce their electricity bills by $250 million, which then ironically, bearing in mind they bought uh, DeepMind for about $600 million, pretty much paying for itself right there. So on the one hand, we can, use, we can increasingly use artificial intelligence with the Internet of Things, 4G, 5G, and all these other sort of different connected technologies and digital technologies to optimize energy consumption, whether it's for buildings, whether it's for data centers, and so on and so forth. That's a relatively quick win that companies can do right now. In episode 12, we met Sophie Bailey, founder of the EdTech podcast. 
Sophie discussed how the education sector utilised technology throughout the pandemic and how the focus had now shifted to the impact of those technologies whilst looking to the future. The other thing that happened in the first instance was that lots of edtech companies offered their services for free for a certain period of time and had huge uptake of those services. And maybe of interest to your listeners is the fact that, you know, I think that there were some instances of um, issues with uptake and then cloud services and scaling, but that kind of all balanced out. And in fact, your numbers at the beginning, so the 40,000 per month was sort of the peak in 2020 when people were really desperate for information around edtech. And in the same way that lots of these companies experienced that that kind of peak and then a leveling off. So I went from about 10,000 downloads a month to 40,000 at the peak and now back around 20,000. So I think a lot of people went through that kind of cycle. And then in higher education, again, I think it's brought to bear some really difficult questions that we were talking about on the podcast for years and now they became absolutely critical. Like what is your hybrid offer how do you work alongside online learning offers? How does that affect your, you know, your fee structure and that kind of thing? So the overall picture was very agile. It was rough around the edges as well. So, you know, we have a much better understanding now of the digital divide and the fact that you can't just assume everyone can pick up and run with these services and or, you know, has the infrastructure or the data or the aptitude to kind of run with it. So I think that is a good thing. And I think it has also evolved our understanding of what we want to do online and then what we want to do in person, which, again, I think is a really healthy thing. So I think now the focus is on impact. So like with um, any other of your sectors, you know, you can do digitization, but how do you actually get to the transformation part and that being ongoing and you know, actually making a significant difference because you're using digital services. And finally, we started the series in episode one with Jay McBain. Jay was 2021 Channel Influencer of the Year and shared fascinating insights about the changes in procurement decision making and the IT companies leading the way. The biggest shift for all of us, though, is the decentralization or the democratization of decision making. So, 10 years ago, when, you know, or 20 years ago, when you didn't get fired for buying IBM or, or Cisco or Oracle or SAP, this showed up on a big RFP and it was procurement led. And these RFPs were millions of dollars. And you would never award an RFP like that to, you know, five guys in a garage. You just wouldn't. And, you know, even in managed services, you know, you wouldn't award that to a small VAR. You always brought it, you know, up to an enterprise level sale. Things shifted quickly, and we talked about it 10 years ago, called it shadow IT or rogue IT. And you'll notice we never talk about that anymore because shadow IT won. Today, 65% of all business and SaaS decisions are made outside of IT, two-thirds. So these don't start as million-dollar procurement-led RFPs. They start as land and expand. It starts with the first 30 days of a project. And you wonder how a company like Salesforce in 1999, got its start, started winning these little departmental deals on credit cards, departmental credit cards, and started infiltrating its way into organizations to where today it's a $25 billion company. 
Last week, it surpassed SAP in revenue. It's worth more than Oracle on the stock market. It's a Dow 30 company, one of the 30 companies that everyone in the world watches every day uh, in terms of their stock price. I think they'll be the next trillion dollar company. That's a grassroots, you know, very divisional departmental line of business purchase that's now taken over. So in the day where there's no million dollar RFPs, other business models now around agility. Thanks for listening to ASM Connected, the podcast from ASM Technologies. To find out more about anything you've heard from across the series, just head over to asmtech.com.